welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash the pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And it's another Pride Month episode. We're back again. Yay. Back, back, back again. Feeling even prouder. Even prouder. So even, proud. even with today's film, that the gays off, not a lot of the gays look fondly on this, according to my trivia. It's, it surprises got me. got a history with the gays, it, yeah. isn't it? But, you know, it's campus tits, so there's lots that can be forgiven. Uh, we are, of course, discussing Basic Instinct from 1992, and this week's special guest for Pride Month is a first. We've had comedians, directors, scare actors, podcasters as guests on this podcast uh, previously, and today we are joined by a member of the Instagram Collectors community, a fellow Real Housewives fan, Yay. I was waiting for that. Uh, <laughs> a guy with amazing taste in films and a full-on expert on all things Basic Instinct. Frankly, we could not record this podcast episode without him. It's Curtis from Curtis Corner. Hello. <laughs> what an introduction that was. I mean, if you guys can top-line me for the rest of my life and, like, pitch me <laughs> to people, then that'll be... That'll work out for me perfectly. Thank you. Well, you have your own real housewives tagline, don't you? Yeah, I do. I may be a catastrophe, but I'm the finest one in Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. That is the first Red Housewives tagline I've had on this podcast. No, um, I, don't, I don't think it could be beaten either. So No. Um, but if you come back, you know, when we have you back on as a guest again, if you want to come back, then you're going to have to think of a new one each time. Oh, I've got like, I've got like a season's worth, so we'll just, we'll just burn them off each time I come in. Amazing, amazing. Um, so, of course, uh, we're also part of the collector's community on Instagram uh, and it's something that, you know, it's, it's a big part of the horror community um, thanks to the power of social media. Uh, when did you start collecting and what made you want to start your Instagram and such? I, I thought you were talking about Real Housewives then I was like, <laughs> is, is it a huge part of the collector's community? I, don't, <laughs> yes, I posted about it on my story like twice and I get dragged for it so <laughs> <laughs> Um, I started collecting, um, are we talking Blu-rays or just anything? Yeah, yeah, Blu-rays. All right, okay, so I'd started collecting Blu-rays when I was, uh, so it was the year that Spy Kids 4 came out. Um, so I think it might have been like 2009 or something like that, maybe 11, one of those two. And, um, I had gotten a Blu-ray player for Christmas that year. And my first Blu-ray set was the Scream trilogy. So it kind of just started from there. But prior to that, I had done, I'd been collecting DVDs forever. And then I had a, a bad incident with Orange Juice, as most eight-year-olds do. And, um, yeah, it just, the DVDs went missing. <laughs> oh, no. What, what? <laughs> and Basic Instinct, I'm, I'm very curious. What's your history with this film? Because you, as I said in the introduction, you are... You know, like the biggest basic instinct fan I know, anyway, um, yeah. and understandably so. Uh, what's your history with the film? So my history with the film is, um, and truth be told, I cannot remember how it was specifically that I came to knowing about it. I just know that I, I must have been around about twelve-ish years old, and I think I was looking for a horror film to watch, and I'd gone to Blockbusters. Um, with my mom and I was looking through like you remember at Blockbusters they used to have these like bargain bins and it was like things that used to be there uh, on rental and then you could just buy the DVD and it'd be like two quid or something yeah 
so it was in there and I was like, oh, can I buy this? Because, I mean, that poster is like one of the most iconic posters I've ever seen. And my mum looked at me and went, absolutely not. Put it back. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> I was like, I was right, OK. Where the story was going. <laughs> like, you're 12 years old. Stop it. So I was like, all right, OK, no worries about it. Didn't kick up a fuss. So I went in with my nan on the Saturday and I was like, oh, there's this film I really want to get from um <laughs> from Blockbusters. It's only two quid. And she's like, oh, what is it? And she sees it and she's like, uh, I'm not sure you can watch that. And I went, no, no, it's a horror film. And she's like, oh, OK. I'm like, yeah, because I'd already watched Scream at that point. I was a huge horror fan from like a really young age. And so my nan was none the wiser and bought it for me. And I was like, right, I've just got to leave this at her house. And then my mum will never know that I've seen it. Um, and so that was my history with it. And then I, I popped it on and that first scene starts up and I'm like, mm, this isn't what I thought it was, but we'll go with it. And so, yeah. And then, God, how many years later? 12 years later. And I'm still love, love, loving it. <laughs> That is amazing. That's even better than I was expecting. <laughs> I love how Chris was like halfway through that. Oh, I thought I was going this way. And it went the exact way. Always throwing the curveball. <laughs> oh, that, that is amazing. And uh, and of course, we, we can't not ask you this. Who's your favourite housewife? Oh, my God. Right. OK, so my, my all time favourite housewife is Tamara Judge from the Orange County Housewives. She's the first housewife that I actually became a fan of because that was the first instalment that I'd seen. Um, yeah, it was like summer and I thought it was Desperate Housewives that was on. So when I turned onto it and this really creepy clown music started up and they were like giving these taglines like, I'm the hardest housewife in Orange County. I was like, who are these women? And I am going to be watching the entire thing. So that's Tamara's my all time fave. And then Teresa from um, New Jersey is a close second because I, I kind of feel like I'm I have a lot of things in common with Teresa, which could be bad for me. I feel like I'm a bit of a ditz and I say words wrong sometimes and I can be a little bit hot headed. Um, and then I would say, you know, she's just she's just started on Dubai and she's literally swooped into my top five and it's Chanel I am like I am fully obsessed with that woman she was she's a star she was born to be a star yeah she is and beautiful drop dead gorgeous yeah as well absolutely and I love Kenya Moore as well and Karen Huger from Atlanta and Potomac they're like they're like my top five I'd say you, Gary, um, struggling with Teresa, aren't you? I was, but I... We've only come into New Jersey as a whole season this season. Mm-hmm. So she hasn't come across too great in this... <laughs> right, so what we need to do is go back to season one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you get to watch this and see how it all transpired, because I could talk about this for days, and, 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 and I would annoy everybody. But I feel like Teresa's always gotten a really rough ride on Housewives, because she's constantly used as the main character. And you can tell she doesn't always want to be used as the main character. Like, if you saw Ultimate Girls Trip... She was so chilled on that season and she had a great time because no one was coming at her. Oh, shit, she was on Ultimate Girls. Yeah, she she didn't do a lot. See, exactly. Everybody forgets because she wasn't flipping tables on it. So it's like, it's one of those things. It's, she was, she's, she comes across in, in a bad way quite a lot of the time. But when you know the history of it, basically, Melissa Gorga is one of my least favorite housewives and my opinion ain't changing on it. So I'd, and her and her husband can waddle on off to, it's some other spin-off and Agreed. don't ever come back. Agreed. Was she best friends with Jennifer Lopez? Yeah, she, she was even at the premiere of Jennifer Lopez's documentary <laughs> recently. 
I mean, define best friends. If like, <laughs> I, I think stalker maybe it'd, it'd work, and like public appearance. A few social media followers get this on there. I don't. Mm, I, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Real Housewives, we we are discussing a film today with lots of legs, hips, and body. Um, yes. And uh, a film with a lead that is just about as good a liar as Erica Jane. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, I don't, is Erica a good liar, Gary? I don't know. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Sharon Stone gives herself away so much throughout this film, and she doesn't give a shit, and I am living for but it. That's her intention. Intention. Ex- exactly, exactly. But obviously, Erica Jane is, is you know, slays less than uh, Sharon Stone. Um, <laughs> Thinking of shagging a man much older than yourself. Uh, that is well. That's where I was going with it. Director. <laughs> Verhoeven, um, who we previously discussed, Showgirls, uh, t- well, we haven't discussed the others, but he's also directed Total Recall, Benedetta, Robocop, Starship Troopers, the list goes on. Uh, he also, no, he did not write the film. Joe Esterhaz wrote the film, who also wrote Showgirls. He also wrote Fist, Flashdance, Jagged Edge, Music Box, Checking Out, and lots more. Budget, $49 million, and it made $352.9 million worldwide. He definitely... Sharon Stone deserves every penny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it made much more on video as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I appreciated way more this time around re-watching it is because we've watched a fair few Paul Verhoeven films in between this time watching it and the first time we watched this. And I figured out his satirical approach to it, um, which I didn't get at first. I just thought it was a really good film. But this time, seeing the satire elements just made me appreciate it even more. Um, Chris, do you prefer this or Body of Evidence? (laughs) (laughs) It's a difficult one. Um, Probably Basic Instinct is the better (laughs) film. Cat value, though. Body of Evidence cannot be beaten. Have have you seen Body of Evidence, Curtis? Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Of course I've seen Body of Evidence. I love Madonna. Um, I haven't seen Body of Evidence in a while, though. Um, It was... Yeah, I I keep wanting to introduce it to Tasha, who's, you know, you've probably all seen her on my... Page because I know that you guys follow me, so it's like um we watch a lot of thrillers and I, or rather it's always I introduce her to a lot of thrillers and Basic Instinct's been like the standard and I've I keep telling her about Body of Evidence but we've not watched it together yet and I just know that that'll be a a wild ride. Yeah, it it holds up a treat. I mean, we did it for the podcast and uh, a part of our Madonna episode and it was it was something. That part of that scene. It's yeah, it's it's. <laughs> high camp and ridiculousness i'm amazed it was released in the same year as this but like a month separating them so neither you know copy from the other but obviously it was a time where erotic thrillers weren't exactly difficult to find no no i've discussed them a few times on the podcast the channel five friday night erotic thrillers (laughs) loads of them there's a fresh one every week we used to watch it and discuss it on a monday morning at school um, absolutely ridiculous. Basic Instinct, I feel like, started all that. Yeah. Or it's at least top tier pinnacle of that erotic thriller ridiculousness where, you know, all the ladies are naked for pretty much the whole film and you're lucky to see a couple of men's butt cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> 
that I was forced to discuss it on a Monday morning at school. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's definitely the antipathy, uh, whatever word I'm looking for, the, the pinnacle of that. And it set the standard. It set the standard and uh, body of evidence rode on those pigtails a little bit. <laughs> John, Chris, we are learning more about your childhood during every Pride Month episode. Really? This is this is kind of like a, a series of events now, because last week it was uh, the gay film you put on for everyone. The gay film, yes. Um, and sex, <laughs> Christina Ritchie. <laughs> and, now, and now it's your erotic thrillers from Channel 5. Who wants to Channel 5 erotic thrillers on a Friday night? Showing oh. my age, maybe. But <laughs> it was literally just... It was like Basic Instinct with a very thin plot and bad acting and, you know, not a, not even close to the level of cinematography that Basic <laughs> Instinct has. It, just to, like, build on that, actually, because I, I got to see Basic Instinct at the cinema this year, um, like, literally right at the beginning of last month, because it was the 25th anniversary, no, 30th anniversary, sorry, and it had gone back into the audience cinemas. And so me and Tasha, I was like, we've got to get to this. I was like, I, this is one of my all-time favourite films. I will be damned if I don't see this on the big screen before I die. So we went in and we watched that film. And I remember I was sat there thinking, it's so 90s, but it looks like it was filmed today. Yeah, yeah. It, like, it looks so good. Like, the, the everything about it, the the camera angles, just it, I'm obsessed with how the the shooting style of it just holds up today. And... The the only thing that really gives away the era that it's in is the clothes. <laughs> and some some of the words, obviously, like, you know, back then and stuff like that, it's, you know, things that people wouldn't say today. Um, you know, like, like, Jesus, man, stop riding me and stuff like that. It's like, you know, people don't really say that today kind of thing. It's So that gives it away. But the shooting style, if, if I would have watched it without that, I would have thought it were filmed like two years ago or so. Yeah, it's, it's one thing that Paul Verhoeven always does really well. Um, yeah. was, we we watched Showgirls at cinema, and that was pretty much the same. Um, it, it's it's something really unique that no other director can really do in, in the way that he presents these films that are all satires on certain elements of filmmaking and whatnot, um, certain genres. You know, if any other filmmaker made these at, at lesser grade quality, they'd just be dismissed as trash. But yeah. Paul Verhoeven does it in such a way that you can't help but admit it's a good film because the filmmaking is so incredible. He's essentially giving you B-movies with an A-list attitude. Yeah. You know, it's the biggest stars. It's Michael Douglas. You know, he was a big star in 1992. Yeah. You know, Sharon Stone, maybe not. But, you know, it's giving you high-budget exploitation. Yeah. That's what his films do, particularly his Hollywood films you know something like starship troopers you watch <laughs> yeah. that and you think it's a throwaway sci-fi piece of crap and you watch it and like oh my god this has layers yes this, you know this isn't meant to have layers i'm you know i'm meant to eat my popcorn and drink a beer and watch denise richard shoot some massive aliens <laughs> but no. i'm also i'm getting a commentary on uh <laughs> america I'm like what is this you know and he does that so well and i think he's very underrated yeah. as a filmmaker oh, definitely. very underrated well, the thing i like is that he knows exactly what he's making yeah absolutely. he's not he's not trying to pretend it's something different like he knows basic instinct isn't going to win an oscar which it should have done but he knows that it's not gonna do you know what i mean it's like he's he knows what he's making and he just wants to give everybody a good time yeah absolutely 
Get into the trivia. Uh, no body doubles were used in any of the sex scenes. And I've started the trivia with that because as fellow, as other listeners of the podcast will know, whenever there's a film with an important piece of nudity or a controversial sex scene, the trivia is full of fucking sex because that's the only trivia people seem to be interested in. But I've tried to, uh, I've tried to sort it out as much as I can. Excuse me. <laughs> Wrong choice of words. Um, Paul Verhoeven had some disagreements with Michael Douglas over his direction of Sharon Stone. Stone was reportedly very nervous and insecure, and in her first scene, she was unable to replicate the performance that she'd given during uh, audition. According to Verhoeven, she came very close to being replaced, but since he knew that she had what the role required, uh, he coached her intensively to get the required performance out of her. However, this caused Douglas to feel left out, as Verhoeven thought that Douglas, as an established actor, no longer needed such close attention. Uh, it eventually led to a very heated argument in a trailer, the stress of which caused Verhoeven to burst a vein in his nose that caused profuse uh, bleeding. When he went outside with bloodstained clothes, crew members thought that Douglas had physically hit him in the face. Have you ever in your life been so angry that your nose started bleeding? I'm like, you need, you need another job, you know? You need, if you're so angry at your work that your nose explodes, I think you're in the wrong profession. Now, obviously, I love his films, and I'm glad that he's still directing. But if you... I mean, that's an early grave right there. If you are so worked up, your nose just spews blood... Yeah. You need to calm down, mate. <laughs> I remember when I was at school, I had a Spanish teacher who had gone, who got really angry with us in one lesson, and he went to open up uh, the door to the classroom, and he'd, he grabbed the handle so hard to pull on it that he'd gone and ripped the skin between his finger and his thumb. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, right, right in front of us all, and it was like, yeah, therapy's required. <laughs> It's not worth it. Like you sure. <laughs> um, Sharon Stone was uh, also yeah. By the way, we learn in this trivia that Michael Douglas, uh, he's not going to listen to this podcast. Bit of a piece of shit. Um, oh, like as we go on, yeah. Mind your own fucking business, Michael. Douglas. I know. You do your shit. <laughs> He wasn't a producer on this, was he? Why is he upset that Paul Verhoeven's not paying him attention? He's still getting fucking yeah, paid. Mind your business. Off. Do your fucking job. You, you, I guess I know you're in every scene of the fucking film, <laughs> but no one gives a shit. You are not the star of this film. <laughs> Get your name off the poster. No one cares. Um, Sharon Stone was director Paul Verhoeven's cho- first choice, but was only offered the role of Catherine after 13 actresses had turned it down, as she was not a marquee name at the time. Would you like to know the actresses considered? I would absolutely, and I'd love to give you my uh, opinion on each one. Sit back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sit back, there's a few. Ooh. Erica Jane. No, not really. Erica um, <laughs> Nancy Allen. Ooh, yes. Rosanna Arquette. Nice. Ellen Barkin. She would have been good. Drew Barrymore. Nope, far too young. Kim Basinger. Yeah, that would have worked. Annette Benin. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a little a little different for her. No, Chris, there's about 50 of these. Are you sure you're going to oh, do sorry. this? Oh, sorry, okay. <laughs> you said 13. <laughs> yeah, that first team that came forward for the role, these are what he wanted. Oh, these okay. Were considered. Oh, okay. Elizabeth Berkeley. Helen, <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. 
Oh. Kim Cattrall, now, come on. That would have worked. Kim would have been good, yeah. Yeah. She would have been good. Stockard Channing? No. No, <laughs> no. Jennifer Connolly? No. Courtney no. Jennifer Connolly? Yeah. Was she, like, legal when this came out? 92. Well, how old was she in Phenomena? Like, as 86. She must have been, like, what, 15? Yeah. Oh, no, she would be barely... This isn't for someone who's barely in their 20s. No. Courtney oh, no. Cox? No. Uh, Gina Davis, maybe Rebecca D. Mornay, yes, yeah. Laura Dern, yes, fuck she yes, do anything. <laughs> Farrah Fawcett, is this the same year as Jurassic Park? Yeah, <laughs> near, it's near that it was. The trajectory. <laughs> Linda um, Forentino, Carrie yeah. Fisher, Bridget Fonda, Jodie Foster, Gina Gershon, Lisa Rinna. Lisa Renner. No, I'm just seeing if you're listening. <laughs> Lisa Renner could have done it. <laughs> Heather Graham, Jennifer Grey, Melanie Griffith, Linda Hamilton, Daryl Hannah, Helen Hunt, Angelica Houston, Diane Keaton, Nicole Kidman. Do you think Heartbreak would have felt good in a place like this? Yes. Diane Lane, Jennifer Jason Lee, Courtney Love, Andy McDowell, Madonna, Virginia Madsen, Bet Midler, Demi Bet Midler, Bet Midler, <laughs> Bet Midler could not. I'm sorry, with all due respect to Bet Midler, she's a legend, but fuck, she could not have played Catherine in Basic Instinct. I would have paid good money to have seen that. Demi Moore, Catherine O'Hara, Annette O'Toole, Sarah Jessica Parker, Michelle Pfeiffer, Annie Potts, Kelly Preston, Julia Roberts, oh. Mimi Rogers, Isabella Rossellini, Ray Risso, Meg Ryan, Winona Ryder, Ali Sheedy, Sybil Shepherd, Elizabeth Shue, Sissy Spacek, yes. Emma Thompson, Leah Thompson, Emma Thompson, Uma Thurman, Marissa Tomei, Kathleen Turner, yes, Deborah Winger, and finally Robin Wright, all considered for the role of Catherine. That is anybody that was a working actress in Hollywood. Basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's literally sat there and like, what actress would I like to shag? Uh, get her involved. <laughs> Although that is a killer list. That, that, I is. mean, that is basically my taste in film right there. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think any of them could have done it like Sharon Stone did. Sharon Stone was so good as this character that I can't picture anybody else playing her. And, like, Demi Moore's an interesting choice because, obviously, in Disclosure, she was was playing a Catherine type. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Just minus the murder. And I didn't think that she did it as well because it was... Demi Moore, you just you see Demi Moore, and sometimes you only see people playing one role, and it's usually like the character from Ghost, and like Heather Graham always usually plays like the good girl kind of thing. So to see them doing something different, you know, you just can't envision it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think closest for me would be Kathleen Turner because she played a sort of neo femme fatale in Body Heat, Crimes of Passion, Crimes of Passion yeah. as well. So she'd done sort of the overtly sexual role um in terms of femme fatale in, in body heat she really encompassed that um sort of using sex to get what she wants sort of thing that was so prominent in film noir um which i think is what basic instinct is trying to do mm. with a very 1992 yeah. sensibility but sharon stone is perfectly cast yeah perfectly cast. 
Um, and just when you thought the casting trivia was over, <laughs> these are all the actors considered for the role of Nick. Oh no! Just it's not as long. It's not as three. long. It's not as long. Richard Dean Anderson, Tom Berenger, Jeff Bridges, Nicolas Cage. Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, Robert De Niro, Harrison Ford, Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox? Michael J. Who Fox. watched Back to the Future and was like, oh yeah, he'd be great in an erotic thriller. Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, Don Johnson, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, John Hurd, Ray Liotta, Christopher Lloyd, Jack Nicholson, Chuck Norris, Al Pacino, Sean Penn, Brad Pitt, Dennis Quaid, Charlie Sheen, Martin Sheen, Wesley Snipes, Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Patrick Swayze, John Travolta, Denzel Washington, Peter Weller, and Bruce Willis. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I actually think Michael Douglas is good casting. Yeah. I think what you needed for the role was uh, a slightly older gentleman who's maybe a bit past his prime, who still sees himself as a stud. Sylvester Stallone. I think that would have worked as well. I, I think someone like Michael J. Fox was too young. Yeah. I don't think that's what the character is going for. I don't think um, it's a naive character. No. But someone who is past it, you know, and yeah. I think age plays into that as well. Um, and it's not really like he had a hard time with this film, considering that he's played that character like a million times exactly, in every other exactly. film. Do you know what I mean? Like he's always playing some bloke that gets like roped into some weird, sordid sex like plot, and there's always some murder there, and it's like he always ends up being the hero. And you're like, meh. <laughs> but in this one, he doesn't. <laughs> and this is what I like about the film. You know, technically, he's as much of a villain as she is with his little uh, shooting incident. So that's what kind of uh, helps towards the gay representation for me. It's not the fact that, oh, she's a lesbian, she's a bisexual killer. You know, that's not the issue here. I mean, he's as much of a piece of shit, you know. I think, for me, the theme is aren't men stupid yeah and he is i mean every man in this film is freaking stupid it's true. And, and annoying <laughs> and you know um really you're fully on sharon stone's side yeah, it's classic masculinity it. yeah um i know you know I, as as a gay guy who worships you know sharon stone of course i was on catherine's <laughs> side i'm not sure if that's really the intention um but certainly not on uh, michael douglas's side no um, speaking of Michael Douglas, he felt an established star was needed to play Catherine, so the movie would be carried by two well-known actors, and the risk of career damage would also be shared. He suggested to me more on Michelle Pfeiffer for the part, but no actress of name was prepared to go completely nude for the role. Pfeiffer said she found the idea of filming the erotic love scenes too daunting, said I just couldn't do that one because of the sexual parts of nudity. My father was still alive, I'm kind of prudish, and honestly, I'm not that inhibited about my body, I'm modest. I love Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Just yeah. Uh, just on like yeah. a topic, I love Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. And she's already like, you know, owning ninety ninety two and Batman Returns anyway. She is actually, yeah. If it if it was this or Batman Returns, I think she made the right choice. Uh, Michael Douglas declined to go full frontal in the film and he did not want his character to be bisexual. Christ. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I am ninety five percent positive that Michael Douglas has a cock shot in this film. Yeah, do you know what? I, I'm I'm with you on that one because I mean, 
unless they used, uh, oh shit, no, actually, no, we're, we're both wrong. They used, uh, body pads, apparently. Oh. Um, it's another bit of the trip. Yeah. The body pad, the body pad fell off. <laughs> 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 There's like a section in the film when he's like, he's on top of her and it's like a wide shot. I mean, when you see this film on a big screen, you see a lot. <laughs> And someone drops down from in between the legs, so um, it's it's either the pad fell off or it was something else. The microphone. And this is why we needed you as the guest on this podcast for these little details. <laughs> Eagle eyes. Eagle eyes. Uh, do you not think it's telling that Michael Douglas could turn around and say, no, you ain't seeing my dick, but Sharon Stone or Mich- someone, even someone like Michelle Pfeiffer yeah. couldn't turn around and say, no, I don't want to do... Full frontal Absolutely. Nudity. Classic 1992. Classic Hollywood well, cinema. Classic Hollywood. I mean, let's face it, this probably still happens to this very day. Exactly. You know? Um, and the thing is, the way that she was kind of like, it's so weird. Well, it's so bittersweet that, like, one of Sharon Stone's best-known moments is the product of she didn't even know that that was going to happen. Yes. Yeah, we got some of that in the trivia later on. That Yeah, I wasn't aware of that until doing research for this film. That's... Uh, Definitely surprised me that, yeah. Oh, wait, so have you not watched the documentary? No, have you watched the documentary? Yes. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> it's She goes into it in the documentary a lot. Yes. And it, you, they all actually talk about it. Every single cast member talks about it. Um, not Gene Triplehorn. But um, they basically kind of... What's the word? How do I say it in English? Uh, they they talk about the fact that you would not be able to get away with doing that to somebody today. Absolutely. And whereas back then, it was literally just considered so normal that she just had to deal with it sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no. Absolutely. Which is disappointing, but she's kind of... The thing I love about Sharon Stone is she's gone and taken that and she's gone and she's literally just laughed in all of their faces because yeah. they just hired her to be the, to be the female lead and she ended up swiping the film from all of them do you know what i mean like that film yeah. is not known as yeah. the michael douglas film or the paul verhoeven film it's known as sharon stone in basic instinct do you know what i mean it's like it's it's always going to be her film yeah absolutely i mean we'll, we'll skip ahead to that bit of the trivia actually um so according to a poll for uh, movie subscription service love film that scene the leg crossing scene has been named the most paused blinking you'll miss it moment in movie history <laughs> Uh, the scene was not in the original script. It was thought of by Paul Verhoeven whilst the movie was being shot, and it was based on a memory of Verhoeven's college years when a woman at a party had done the exact same thing to embarrass him. Okay. Sharon Stone later said she had no idea that they were going to show her vagina in that infamous... Infamous? What the fuck is English today? Oh. Infamous scene. Um, when we did it, it was going to be an innuendo, and the director said, we're seeing the white of your underwear. Uh, I need you to take them off. And I'm like, I don't want you to see anything. And he's like, no, you're not going to, she recalled. When I saw it in the theatre with a bunch of other people, I was in shock. Uh, when Ooh. the film ended, I went in the booth and then I slapped Paul Verhoeven. Yes, Queen. And I said, you uh, could have showed this to me by myself. However, the director strongly denied Stone's claim, uh, saying she was fully aware that her vagina would be shown in the movie before the scene was filmed. And Verhoeven has also repeatedly asserted that despite the controversy, he and Stone remain on good terms and there's no bad blood between them. They just remember things differently. I believe Sharon Stone. The lies he tells. The lies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Of course he's going to say that. Of course. 
yeah, that's considering that is like the most famous scene from the film. That that is absolutely shocking. That that's how it went down. Yeah, it's it's the it's the scene that made Sharon Stone's career. It, it's the one that everyone talked yeah. about, but it also projected her career in a certain direction. Yeah, you know, and she's a fantastic actress. She was nominated for an Oscar. You know, a few years later, uh, for Casino. Mm. Um, so, but that is what she's remembered for, and it was kind of taken out of her own hands. Yeah. Um, and that's what is, you know, not good. It's it's yeah, not good. Absolutely. And she's owned it. Yeah, and that's that's the thing, like you said, Curtis. You know, the fact that she's owned it and used that to make a career. Then fair play to her. You know, that's yeah. That's, and the thing I love about her is that she, the way that she provokes important conversation with the usage of the scene i think that that is so well done and so incredibly clever because she'd won an award um i'm gonna say quite recently but since the last two years sort of blended into one um it could have been (laughs) could have been 2019 um but she'd won an award recently and she'd gone out on stage and she was doing the leg crossing scene she was talking she was linking it to empowerment but then she went and they were all like applauding her and everything because that's the scene that's the big moment it's like sharon stone's doing this scene on stage with everybody and then she provokes such a much more important conversation about um stuff like that in hollywood and everything and she she really got her message across and like she got a standing ovation at the end of it and i just thought that is so well thought out yeah Absolutely. This is a film where her character very uh, explicitly stabs a man in the face uh, multiple times with an ice pick, yet all we can talk about is her vagina. Yeah, again, that's something else that comes up later on in the trivia. Um, but it's, it's the Barbara Streisand effect, isn't it? Yeah. Um, to give you a bit of context. <laughs> the film where Barbara Streisand had shown her breasts and she wanted to cut out the film and she told everyone, do not show them, do not show them, do not, you know, blah, blah. She told everyone who would listen. But if she'd just kept quiet, no one would have known. But yeah. she told everyone about this scene. And so in owning it and saying, yeah, you know, this is, I'm owning it. So what? You know, I'm empowered. Then Sharon Stone has been able to change the conversation. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, props to her and, and Elizabeth Berkeley has subsequently done the same with Showgirls. Yeah. Where she said, actually, I own this now. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, many people love this, love my performance, love the, this sexuality within Showgirls. And, you know, I want to be part of that rather than telling everyone, you know, how awful it was because certain people didn't like it. Yeah. Well, there's so mm-hmm. many people who loved it. You know, and love me for it. So I'm going to be part yeah, of that now. Absolutely. Um, Kurt Douglas, then age 75, uh, attended the premiere and pra- <laughs> praised his son's bravery in making the movie. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> what did Michael do that was so library? Michael, uh, Michael, me, me and Mike, me and Mike, 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 my pal, Mikey D, uh, Mikey D. Um, but earlier in the trivia, you said that he thought the film was a big risk. Yeah, it, it wasn't a big risk to you. Yeah, 
it wasn't, you know, Michael Douglas's career would would have survived a yeah. film like Sharon Stone's career wouldn't have if this yeah. was a big flop and a big joke. Mm. Which Elizabeth Berkley's career didn't survive Showgirls. Exactly. Um, but Carl Conklin's did. Yeah. You yeah. know, so shut up, Michael Douglas. Um, Mikey, Kirk, Douglas, Kirk Douglas can shut up too. Mikey D uh, also said in interviews that he wanted to star in the movie because he felt sex scenes were in danger of disappearing from Hollywood due to the AIDS epidemic. Really? <laughs> what is wrong with this fucking guy? <laughs> oh, and he had a full facelift before filming. Again, of course right? he did. <laughs> he had a facelift before filming. I, I, he needs to get a refund. <laughs> How old was he? <laughs> have, you, have you got his date of birth yeah, there, Chris? Yeah, face <laughs> that's, that's the uh, That's the brave part. That's the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, going on screen with that facelift, that, you know, the non-existent one. That, that explains for. the uh, acting. <laughs> um, 1944. So by that point, he was... Uh, pushing 50. He was uh, late 40. The fucking facelift made him look older. He, he looks older than 48. Yeah. He's one of those that's hard to tell. Because he, he looked kind of old when he was he young looked, as well. He looked old when he was born. He, he was a... just bored like that. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people in this film kind of just have... You know, they. I think they all... But I don't think it's them. I think it's more the year that it... The, the, the decade that it was made in, I feel like everybody in the 90s all looked older than what yeah. they actually were. And that's not like in a shady way, that's just in the things that people would wear and the styles that was in and stuff like that. It was very much like... Um, it, I think it was designed to make you look older and like sophisticated and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the role of Nick was originally a lesbian cop written for Kathleen Turner... That's hilarious. That's amazing. <laughs> that would be so good. Paul Verhoeven was on record uh, when he first signed on to do the film as saying that he wanted to make it the first Hollywood mainstream film with an erect penis in it. He didn't get his wish, but he did get a limp penis on screen for the corpse for uh, for Boz. Yeah. Was, Goals? Yeah. I mean, if that's what you're headed for in your <laughs> career, you know. you got to aim high. Uh, later followed by a sequel, Basic Instinct 2, which flopped at the box office uh, without Michael Douglas in it. Um, have we seen Basic Instinct 2, anyone? No. Yeah, I've seen Basic Instinct 2. Of course I've seen Basic Instinct 2. I have the Blu-ray. It's terrible. <laughs> All I, remember I think my favourite scene in that... You know what? Basic Instinct 2. i just got to say this about Basic Instinct 2. They let Sharon Stone down with that movie. They, they seriously let her down because we knew that she could play that character so well. Yeah. And the way that she'd come back into it and the dialogue that had been written and the direction that she was getting, I was just thinking, this is like, you, you're not trying to like, you're not trying to help her right now. Do you know what I mean? It's like she's not playing the same character. It felt like a very different character to the one that we'd seen in the first film. Um, but specifically, there's one scene in that that just always sticks out to me. And it's when, have you watched Basic Instinct 2? Not yet. No. All right, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say, y'all are going to watch it and then and then we'll discuss it. 
are you going to come back on for Basic Instinct 2? <laughs> I mean, I don't think we can get a full episode out of Basic Instinct 2, in all honesty. Maybe like an add-on on, on something, or just a couple of DMs. I don't, I don't think it's going to be like an episode-worthy thing. Uh, well, one of the main points of disagreement between Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaz uh, with First Basic Instinct concerned Verhoeven's wish to include a lesbian love scene between Catherine and Roxy as he considered a movie that only mentioned bisexual love without showing it to be only uh, Puritan. Yeah. Uh, Esther has considered such a scene to be pure sensationalism and wanted to have nothing to do with it. Verhoeven made some attempts himself, even considering having Nick uh, secretly watch whilst the two women have sex. However, he found that the scene ruined the movie's pace, so he abandoned the idea and publicly apologised to Esterhaz. The only uh, remnant of the scene in the movie is when Catherine and Roxy passionately kiss after Nick leaves the apartment. Um, I don't know. Do you think it would have benefited from um, the sex scene? Ah. I don't know. I mean, the whole film feels very gay as it is. I mean, it would have added to it, and I, you know, I think it would have been a good addition. Not sure how important, though. I feel like the route that they would have gone down with it would have been more gratuitous than anything else. Yeah. I feel like it would have, it would have just solely been in there so that the audience could watch two girls getting off with each other. Absolutely. And more importantly, like, if they're going to throw a Michael Douglas into the scene to watch, it's like, it's not there for anything other than just, like, filler and just for the audience to gawk at. Another scene for everybody to pause on the VHS tapes. Yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 I don't say this much about films, but the sex scenes in Basic Instinct actually kind of push the narrative. Yeah. Or yeah. Like they, they encompass the themes of the film, and I don't think that was... Because I don't think Roxy was ever in danger of Catherine killing mm. her then I don't think that was necessary. Whereas when each yeah. of the sex scenes with Michael Douglas, there's the feeling in the back of our heads that he's going to get killed yeah. at any point. Yeah. So I, th- I think the sex scenes in Basic Instinct, the way they are, is necessary. That one wouldn't have been necessary. Definitely. Uh, Faye Dunaway openly criticised Michael Douglas for not letting Sharon Stone have the top billing. Yes, Queen. Do you know what? Faye Dunaway was on the money with that one. She was, yeah. His name's above the title. (laughs) On the DVD, it used to... Now, Studio Canal have at least done something to alter this, like when they did the big re-release last year for 4K. Um, They went and added Sharon Stone's name onto the box, uh, onto the poster, whereas before, on the DVD, it was just always Michael Douglas in, like, the biggest letters across the top of the thing as if, like, it was his movie. And it's just not at all. It's the same with Denise Richards in Wild Things. Like, Denise's name was never on the title. She's fifth build. Do you know what I mean? She's fifth build in the movie. And her name was never included on the poster uh, with uh, Kevin Baker, Matt Dillon, Nev Campbell. Denise Richards' name wasn't on there. But for the Arrow re-release, they're like, yeah, let's put the star of the show's name on the poster. Yeah. Because she's a bit, much bigger presence in that film than Kevin Bacon was. Kevin Bacon's belly, isn't it? But he had an EP credit, so it's like, you know what's going on there. It's just so like, hey, Kevin Bacon. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't Bill Murray in that film as well? Yeah, Bill Murray's in the film too. <laughs> we're watching that this month. I watched it uh, a lot when I was younger. Um, but we're watching that this month, we aren't are. we? For yes. Pride Month. I'll just watch that again. Um... Last last Saturday? 
I watched it last Saturday again with Tasha, and, and the new transfer is amazing. So yeah, and I'm glad that they've put some respect on Denise Richards. Did you get the Did you get the Arrow edition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch the interview that she did afterwards. Oh, okay. It was Denise Richards. I love Denise Richards. <laughs> oh, she's so angry. <laughs> what, <laughs> what have we previously discussed with Denise? Richards? Oh, uh, Valentine. 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 Course, yeah, Valentine. Yeah. Though she's been in any other podcast films. Yeah, we Tammy to... and the T-Rex. Tammy and the T-Rex, of course, yes. Tammy and the T-Rex, yes. yes. Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers. We need to do that. Her yeah. best performance, I think, is Drop Dead Gorgeous. I love she Oh, was my very... God. Drop Dead Gorgeous. I love, oh, love, love, love that movie. Everyone. That was so good. Mm. So Sharon Stone, when doing the interview circuit, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, uh, she's annoyed by the fact that everyone always asked her for how she felt during the nudity scenes when she had real problems with the fact that her character killed someone on screen to the point she had to have a paramedic on standby during uh, the famous intro scene, uh, she kept passing out and suffered nightmares. Yeah. Added on to that... Taylor's oldest time. She was not protected on the set. No. 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 She wasn't a star. She she wasn't. Well, adding on to that, after the film's release, someone actually called Sharon Stone's mother and asked her how she felt about her daughter's nudity in the film. Her mother said, frankly, I was much more concerned about her playing a uh, sociopathic serial killer. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Excuse me, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, no it, one's calling Kirk Douglas saying, oh, what do you think to Michael's ass being I, on full display? <laughs> Did he get an ass lift? He was brave, Chris. Well. He was brave. He was very brave. <laughs> um... Yeah, no, it it is crazy the way people look at sex and compare to violence uh, in comparison to violence. It, it really is, and it's something we discussed on this podcast many times before. I, I'll never understand it. But this is a film that deals with sex and violence yeah. together at the same time. Yeah. But still, all anyone can talk about is the sex. Yeah, and 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 a scene with no violence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's stupid. When you even look at the promotion now for the film, it was never promoted with the violence. Like, if you watch the original trailer that came out, which is like a fever dream, by the way, um, when you watch that trailer, it it puts a lot of focus on the sex than anything else. Yeah. And it looks... <laughs> watch the... I would I would suggest watch the original trailer that they produced for the, for the first cinema run and then watch the trailer that Studio Canal did uh, for the re-release last year, and and just tell me which trailer's better. They're both good, but one is better than the other. I think ultimately, though, sex does sell. And if the original trailer was the emphasis was on the sex, then the film made a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So it must have worked. So I think it's it's telling of the the film industry, and and for me personally. You know, it, it it's the ridiculousness of the sex in the church. You know, because it's very over the top. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, um, yeah, I'm not getting my kicks from it's it. It's poor behaving sex, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that I, that does sell, I suppose. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, to get an R rating, Paul Verhoeven had to recut the film a total of 14 times. Uh, the scenes demanding the heaviest recuts were the murder of Johnny, the date rape of Elizabeth Garner. That wait, where was that? What? Uh, he didn't. He didn't uh-huh. drug her. Yeah. Did he? Oh, date rape. Yeah. I mean, she repeatedly says no, though. That is. 
that's a complex scene. We're going to get to it that is, yeah. um, during the film. Um, but yeah, that, I, I wouldn't exactly describe that as date rape, though. That's, you know... Someone Wait, but was, is that like... There's another... There's a part of the plot, isn't there, that we don't quite... They don't fully get into about her past. Ah, uh, yeah. Is it maybe like... Maybe it's linked into that. Maybe. I don't know. I didn't actually know that fact, so that's that's an interesting one. Um, the sex scene between Nick and Catherine, uh, one of them. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's I swear there's more than one. <laughs> but um, yeah. uh, and the death of Gus, which is yeah. I mean, I can understand why the MPAA, with the sort of attitude they had around this era, would have uh, moaned about that. Um, Gay writes that a final bit of trivia in, in what has been the longest trivia section in any episode ever. <laughs> we have discussed Psycho, we have discussed The Shining, we have discussed Halloween, and this is absolutely by far the longest trivia section we've ever had. Um, gay rights activists were so against the way the gay characters were portrayed that they blocked the San Francisco set numerous times. Paul Verhoeven had to issue fake call sheets to trick the protesters into blocking unused locations. When the film was released, the activists paraded around San Francisco theatres handing out flyers saying Catherine did it to ruin the plot for moviegoers. This didn't seem to have any impact at all as the movie opened at number one on the same weekend and went on to become one of the highest grossing films of the year. Uh, which also, as well as ending the trivia section, that leads me on a segue to the question we ask during every Pride Month film. What makes this gay? But more importantly... Is this positive gay or negative gay? I think it started off as negative gay, but I think it's grown into something that's a little bit more positive. Because I think back in the 90s and stuff like that, you LGBTQIA plus people were being used as the villains yeah. in things. Whereas, like, now, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I love seeing, like, a fantastic, like, gay killer in a horror film Absolutely. or something. Like, Absolutely. Or something. And I like the layers for it as well. And I, I think it it's a bit of a double entendre because it kind of plays into the whole, like, you know, it's villainizing gay people and stuff like that. But the way I look at it is that, you know, you have a lot of straight killers. I mean, let's... I'm, I could give an example, but, like, my brain's going to mush. I could... Like, we have a lot of uh, straight serial killers in films and stuff like that. And they don't represent all straight people. Do you know what I mean? So I don't understand why I can hear the dog barking. <laughs> um, and they don't um, they don't represent all straight people. So I don't think that Catherine Trammell represents any bisexual people at all. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not a case of all bisexual people are killers. I feel like that's kind of what people have come to accept with the film as the years have gone on. Absolutely. And it's like I said earlier, you know, if um, she was the only killer in the film, then, you know, maybe there'd be um, some some excuse for an argument. But at the same time, Michael Douglas is is genuinely just as bad a character. I mean, if anything, he, you know, he still kept his job after killing two people, mm. you know, whilst on cocaine. Still very on brand today, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's the sort of thing that kind of, you know, makes this more positive for me. Um and, you know, as far as uh, our usual what makes this gay question, I mean, come on. Sharon Stone. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's high camp, which always, you know, is, is, is gay. How I saw it is that Sharon Stone, Catherine, wasn't a bisexual character. 
in the sense of this is what bisexual people are. Yeah. She was a character who used sex to get what she wanted, whether that be with a man or a woman. Yeah. So she used Roxy as much as she used any other character mm. in the mm. film. And because of the way, and it's something I'll, I'll discuss more, because uh, <laughs> I'm educating. No, <laughs> uh, but psychologically, she uses a lot of different methods to control people. But ultimately, sex is the one that works the most. So are you going by the theory that she could be asexual and just use sex as a weapon? No, no. I believe she's a bisexual character, but she uses her sexuality, her innate personal sexuality and her um, beauty and sexuality Mm -hmm. to control people, whether they are male or female. It doesn't really matter to her. Um, I think... Also, she probably had the strongest connection with Roxy, yeah. the female character. So I think that's actually quite a positive representation. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't actually think she ever intended for Roxy to die how no. she did. Sorry, yeah. spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. You got any more to say about it? No, no, because no? I think we'll get more into it whilst we get into the film. I mean, I have one thing to say. I do think that it's... Not at all does it invalidate how people felt in the 90s, because it's like, you know, the beauty of time is that you can grow to love things that you didn't love before. Oh, yeah. And I do think that in the 90s, it's like, especially like in the middle of an AIDS epidemic, too. It's it's kind of one of those things where you just you know what Hollywood's ulterior motives are with with what they're doing. And you need to stand up for it and say that's not right. Yeah. So I I think that I I totally get where they're all coming from because you want representation, but when you're not getting representation, do you know what I mean? And then when you start to get the representation, it's kind of sucky if you feel like all the representation that you're getting is, like, geared towards you being evil. Absolutely. So I think as we've gone on, like, today, you know, we've got amazing representation for the LGBTQIA plus community, and we don't have enough... But we're getting there. It's true. And the representation that we get now, it's a real melting pot. And I love that because it's we've got representation of all kinds of characters. And that's what's important because there's all kinds of people. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. like Heartstopper, mm. which is a, a gay series um, readily available on Netflix. You know, yeah. the biggest streaming service in the world. And it's just a thoroughly positive representation yeah it's just it it doesn't go through any of the ups and downs i don't think of you know no and, and well i mean with one character discovering he's bisexual it's doubt in a very positive way yeah it's you know that's the bullying and everything is is portrayed in the show because i mean let's face it it needs to be because this stuff goes on but there's yeah. definitely more positive moments in the show than the you know, more downbeat moments. Yeah, I just, I don't think it's playing on traumas too much. No. Which I think a lot of gay media does play yeah. on. It's, it's the trauma, the trauma, you know, when yeah. 
RuPaul picks up the, the photo and says, what would you tell your five-year-old <laughs> self? You know, it, it doesn't, you don't have to have that all the time. So no. I think we've really come a long way in, the, what, the last 30 years? Yeah, yeah. Since basic and, and then obviously before that as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's also refreshing that Catherine doesn't die in the end. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll get into the film itself. Oh, yeah. Um, so a violent police... <laughs> I de- forgot we were talking about the film. <laughs> a violent police detective investigates a brutal murder that might involve a manipulative... Uh, oh, my God. A manipulative and seductive novelist. We start with a mirror showing us retired rock star Johnny Boz having sex with a mysterious blonde woman. She ties into the bed, grabs an ice pick, and starts stabbing the fuck out of him. Mm. <laughs> I love how the opening credits are a kaleidoscope effect. Yeah. And um, you're confused from the get-go. You're like, what mm-hmm. are we seeing here? What's, you know, what's happening? Is it what I think's happening, which is, you know someone's having a shag and then you cut to it you're like oh okay yeah (laughs) so from the get-go you're sort of confused and you're like yeah you know what is going on here and it turns out to be what you think it's going to be which is kind of how the film plays out as well yeah iconic opening scene yeah and i feel like as well the soundtrack like as soon as that music starts you just know that you're in for a good time oh my god the soundtrack is amazing like, we need that on vinyl. I want it on vinyl, two two vinyls, and I want it as, like, a clear ice blue swirl. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's San Francisco. Just, home... Sorry, oh. just, just the opening sequence as yeah. well. I, and it's something that comes up a lot during the film, mm-hmm. is the woman is on top. Yeah. And you don't see that all the time in cinema. No. In sex scenes. Particularly, you know, in... general sex scenes mainstream mainstream sex scenes where the sheets on top of the yes yeah this that and the other um but it's very much a theme throughout the film is when the woman is on top and when the woman isn't on top Mm -hmm. um and i think that's very interesting and it's there from the get-go yeah you know she is on top yes yeah, we know from the get-go, the woman is in charge. Symbolism. The curtains were blue. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, in San Francisco, homicide detective uh, Nick Cohen. Homicide? Did I do that again? You oh, my God. Do you remember lot. last year when I said homicide? Homicide. Anyway. <laughs> Future career homicide I mean, detective. it's about homicide. Where is it? Well, is it? No, homicide. Oh, no, homicide. Homicide. Oh, homicide, detective, homicide detective Nick Curran. Uh, we can't say that. Michael Douglas didn't want to be gay, remember? Uh, investigates the murder of Johnny. Um, so the best dialogue in the film, he got off before he got offed. <laughs> um, they all, the, Nick and the other detectives are having a great time looking around this crime scene. They are. Um, notice how they're all older, mainly white men. Yes. Um, they all sort of, I feel, represent a certain kind of uh, masculinity. Yeah. And I think that's the point. Um, there's the idea that there's spunk all over the bedsheets. And we're like, oh, OK. Ooh. Um, then in true Paul Verhoeven style, he shows us <laughs> by flashing a UV light all over. I'm like, oh, yeah. There, yeah, there's... Uh, Definitely there. There's spunky stains. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Wash your sheets a bit bleach more often. <laughs> Uh, um, <laughs> but that's I mean, lost the train of thought. Now. The thing is, other filmmakers wouldn't show you that 
Well, this is <laughs> this is what makes Paul Verhoeven so great. It's because over they would say, "Oh, spunky stains on the sheets." Like, <laughs> well, unless we're talking Stranger by the Lake. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Whereas Paul Verhoeven were like, actually, let's get the UV light on there. Let's <laughs> show you what they're talking about. And I think that's great. I love that. Yeah. Um, Curtis, do you have anything to say about the spunk before we move on? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was there, so <laughs> it was there. I don't, it, the interesting thing is I thought it was always, um, you've got to ignore the facts of life when you watch this movie because, you know, obviously they could have, like, you know, they were using DNA testing back then, so they would have found out it was DNA debate, yeah. <laughs> but, like, apart from that, when you take it out of the equation, it's... I don't know. I never really like thought anything... I, I didn't think that much about that part. I just thought it was it was very... It felt very realistic that that would be the conversations that the detectives would be having. Yeah. Not just because they're assholes, but in in the way of like you know when you when you're in a job where you've got to go investigate dead bodies, I mean eventually you're going to have to have a sense of humour about it, otherwise you'll go crazy. Absolutely. I find uh, with a lot throughout the whole film, a lot of the characters, their dialogue starts with sex. Yeah. Particularly Nick. Um, when he's defending himself, the first thing is, you want to know how many times I jerked off. This is how I, you know, it all leads off with that. And I think the conversation here does as well. It's not necessarily, here's a corpse that's been, you know, murdered in a horrible way. Look Mm. at all the spunk on the sheets. And that's, did the maid do it? Nah, the maid couldn't have done it because she was too fat and old to, to get on top. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. this is where the... And I think it's that certain type of masculinity. And I think Nick embodies that in many ways yeah. throughout the film. Uh, that toxic masculinity. And that's yeah. how I read yeah, yeah, the definitely. film and the character. Um, Nick and his colleague, Detective Gus Moran, uh, go to question Boz's girlfriend, the crime novelist, Catherine Trammell. Uh, when he gets to her house, he meets Roxy, Catherine's so-called friend, and uh, they ask her, when was the last time you saw John Buzz? And she says, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, they you know, it's not suspicious. So John, oh, John Buzz <laughs> and Catherine, they've both got Picassos, haven't they? They have. But hers is bigger, mm-hmm. which I thought was another insight. Um, they think that Roxy is... Catherine, yeah. as she descends the stairs, yeah. as in any sort of film of this type, that would be Catherine. Yeah. And she would descend the stairs looking all glamorous, like a good uh, Madonna tribute act. <laughs> <laughs> Not Madonna, a good Madonna tribute act. And that, that they think that's Catherine. That's yeah. how they see Catherine would be. Yeah. You know, she's glammed, she's, you know, ready for MTV. Or whatnot, and that's not how she's introduced in the film. And no. that's plain in, you know, film noir. That's how yeah. the femme fatale would be introduced. Yeah. Glam, made up, you know. Yeah. And that's not because we then cut to them meeting Catherine for the first time. And what an introduction that is! Yeah. She's smoking at a beach house. She's living life, just looking at the beach. She's got a Mrs. Voorhees sweater on. <laughs> She's just an unbothered legend, to be honest. It's like she just doesn't care. Like the thing, the thing I love about Catherine is that not everything that happens in this film, aside from Roxy dying, she doesn't care about it. 
Like, she's just like, yeah, okay, and next, moving on. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's that's kind of how she is about it all. And it works so well for the character because you really get, from that first introduction, because obviously they try, they try and make you think that it's not her in that opening scene. You know, they want to give a little bit of mystery to it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, could it really be her? Would it be that obvious? Do you know what I mean? And whatnot. So when we're first actually introduced to her and we see her body language and everything, you just think like, yeah, she don't give a fuck. Yeah, and yeah. and that's what I love about it because you just know that you're gonna, you know that this character is gonna, you aren't gonna be able to take your eyes off her because she's gonna give so much by giving them so so little in in the way of emotion and stuff like that. Like it's perfect. Absolutely, it's she's playing on their expectations yeah. of her, and it's yeah a really well written character. I think from a psychological point of view. Because she's very calculated. Yeah. Um, but she didn't tell you that. She didn't show that. Yeah. You don't see her sweat. And I, I love how um, I, I love some of her first lines of dialogue. I mean, when they ask how long were you dating him, she's like, I wasn't dating him. I was fucking him. It's like, okay, this queen is a sex positive queen. She's does not give a fuck that she's making herself sound suspicious as well in the process. But you know, you got to stand someone like that. Yeah, <laughs> Catherine tells the detectives that she had been sleeping with Johnny for a year and a half. Um, she's sorry he's dead because she liked fucking him. <laughs> uh, she's like, read me my rights and arrest me. Take me downtown. Otherwise, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> the redubbing on that scene is absolutely hilarious as well. <laughs> Um, Nick goes to see his counsellor, Dr. Beth Garner. We find out that Nick's sex life is shitty since he stopped seeing Beth and hasn't had a drink or done cocaine in three months. And uh, Beth still misses him. Yeah. So this this is, again, this is Nick all over. She asks how he is. Yeah. And he says his sex life has been shit since they <laughs> broke up. Like, I don't remember her asking about it's his sex facelift, life. It's isn't it? But this this is him. It's from the get-go. Yeah. It's, oh, well, I'm not good because my sex life hasn't been good because you're not shagging me anymore. Uh, he's developed calluses on his hand because he's, he's yes. given himself a treat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did I have to explain that one? To be, I, I wasn't sure if I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank you, thank you. <laughs> um... She misses him. Is it Gus that says, boy, when that girl mates, it's for life? I think so, yeah, it is good, yeah. Um, yeah. I think this character really irritates me because I just, I kind of feel like I, I just want her to love herself a little bit more because she clearly doesn't. And it's, there's just so many more moments where I'm thinking, Beth, just literally leave him be, just fuck off. Do you know what I mean? It's like you, 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 he, he's not going to give you what you want. Do you know what I mean? So just walk away from it. There's there's no need for you to be chasing him, but obviously that's how the character's written. Do you know what I mean? It's not a reality show where you're like talking to a real person yeah. and you want this real person to go and do the right thing. Oh, she could absolutely like, way better. She just has so many moments in the film where you're just thinking like, oh god, Beth, like really? And but in a way, I guess it makes it a little bit relatable to other people because it's like you know we've all had those moments as well. So it's like, you know, where you're thinking, like, you know something's bad for you and you should walk away from it, but you kind of end up staying because, you know, I guess you're used to it and, and whatnot. But I, there's just so many moments I'm just like, Beth, girl, just just call it a day. Yeah, absolutely. 
Nick and his colleagues figure out that Catherine has a history of dating rich people who die and has wrote a book about a rock star getting murdered by his girlfriend with an ice pick. So it's concluded that either Catherine is the murderer or someone is attempting to frame her. And this leads us to a setup for a certain iconic scene. Uh, Nick and Gus go to take Catherine to the station. Nick finds a newspaper with his name on it and watches Catherine get changed into something more comfortable. Um, yeah, and then Catherine on the drive, I mean, this is one of my favourite scenes. Uh, it, this is genuinely one of the best examples of her just not giving a shit. Like, she yeah. might as well just say there and then, I, you know, I, yeah, of course I killed him. Are you, are you serious? Of course it's me. Yeah. Um, but she's absolutely just making an absolute mockery of these detectives. It's great. She asks Nick if he need, if he wants a cigarette before congratulating him on quitting. Uh, she takes a cigarette out and offers him one. Gus asks if she's working on a new book, and she says she is, and it's about a detective who gets killed after he falls for the wrong woman. And yet, from this point onwards, we see it spiral with Nick falling in love with her after she's told him that she's basically going to kill him. Yeah. It's, yeah, what I find is that she's playing on the conceptions of who she is. Yeah. So when it turns out, when they find out that Catherine is a multimillionaire with a degree in psychology and literature, they seem shocked. Yeah. Because how can she be beautiful and rich exactly. and intelligent? Which one is it? You know, who did she shag to get her million? Oh, she didn't? No. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's playing on that. And like I said earlier, with the using sex to control people... Um, in psychological history, we watched um, suddenly last summer, mm-hmm. where the Elizabeth Taylor character is in part controlled by cigarettes. Yeah, being offered cigarettes that she can't get herself. So Catherine, on a few occasions, offers Nick a drink, a cigarette, stuff that he's meant to be quitting, as a way of controlling him. Ultimately, that leads to sex, which she uses as the ultimate way of controlling people. That's how I read this. And I think it's such a well-written character to have these little incidents Mm -hmm. where she's playing him. And she's playing him from the get-go. Yeah. And he thinks that he's playing her back after this. Mm -hmm. But he's not. Because he's never as good as she is. Exactly. I mean, it's the fact as well that, like, she's literally set this entire thing up yeah. for her next book. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, so, from the get-go, like, the murder, she knew who was going to be getting on the case, she knew who was going to be coming to interview her and everything like that. So it's all it's all part of a plan. Yeah, that that is some queen behaviour. Mm. Uh, Catherine arrives at the station as questioned by ADA John Corelli, who you may recognise from Jurassic Park. Um, she lights a cigarette despite being told she can't smoke, tells them how she never tied Johnny up because she liked him using his hands and fingers, and also tells them that she didn't kill Johnny because it would be stupid killing someone the same way they were killed in her book. She then asks uh, Nick if he's ever fucked on cocaine, uncrosses her legs to reveal something, and then says it's nice. She she made it. She did it nice. She did, she did it nice. <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely, again, iconic with a problematic backstory turned positive later on. What is there to be said about this scene in general? 
I think it defined a lot of the thriller genre. Yeah. This scene is what a lot of thrillers try to replicate. They want that basic instinct moment that's just surrounded by so much controversy that it's what the film ends up being known for. And I think a lot of thrillers haven't successfully been able to replicate it. I think a few have, but I think a lot of them have kind of fallen flat. It's true. It's true. I, I find um, a, lo- a lot of thrillers have uh, have only managed to succeed when they don't try doing something like that, when they've got enough good going for them where they don't need that sort of moment. And this film had enough going for it where it didn't need this moment. Um, but it, it, of course, it's the one that everyone remembers. Um, but yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And Chris, what do you have to? Um, I think from a character perspective, um, her doing that is very much part of her plan. Yeah, you know, like I said, and I'm going to keep saying it because it keeps coming back in the film. Mm-hmm. She uses sex to get what she wants. Yes, and she mm. knows the the guys there. She knows what these older detectives are like yeah their toxic masculinity she's like well how am i gonna play play them really yeah well let's use sex and it works yeah it it works because she then passes the uh, lie detector test yeah. Which is such a weird visual. Did you not think that was a really it weird... Was... Like, Sharon Stone in that dress. I forgot this is part of the film. Like, with a lie detector. Like, like all uh, the, the the bands and everything it's very on camp. her. Very it's high camp. camp. Um, but she knows how to get ahead, you know? And she mentions the cocaine with Nick. Yeah. You know, she knows Nick inside out. We find out later that she's been planning this for months. Before they even met each other, she's mm. been planning all this. Um, and I think it's just, it is queen behaviour, you know. She she knows what she wants. She knows how to get it. Yeah, what she wants is to murder people, to use their stories for a book. <laughs> but, you know, she knows what she needs to do. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. And she does it. Um, yeah, she passes the lie detector test. She's released. Nick gives her a lift home. Uh, and she asks if he took a lie detector test after shooting two people. Uh, he says he did, and he passed. So this is when we, go, you know, we start to learn that there's a bit of a darker side to uh, to Nick. Um, hence his counselling with uh, Dr. Beth. Nick orders his first drink in three months at the bar and insists to his colleagues that he and Catherine don't know each other, despite her knowing so much about him. It's she's starting. Re- she's starting. She's starting. <laughs> it's oh, uh, that whiskey. She's starting. <laughs> it's revealed that her parents died in an accident when she was younger. Uh, another detective, Lieutenant Marty Nelson of Eternal Affairs, taunts Nick about his double shooting. Uh, but Beth arrives and breaks it up. Yeah. Guys being guys. Guys <laughs> being guys. Guys it's being a bit guys. Of banter. Oh, do you remember that time you shot two people? Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's give you a fun nickname based on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she and Nick go back to her apartment and, uh. It's something, sorry, just something interesting that one of the officers says at the bar. He says, sometimes I think he only banged her to get off the hook with internal affairs. Yeah. Do you think Nick could have been guilty of using sex with yes. Steph the same Definitely. way that Catherine used yep. sex to get ahead? Yeah. So he uses Beth just as much as Catherine uses yep. him. Well, definitely. 
you know, Beth's always there to help him out in these tight situations. He probably should have gotten into trouble with the, the shooting of the tourists because he pretty much admits that he was high on cocaine yeah. at the time. Uh, Beth comes into the situation and saves him again. Um, and he only really interested in her when it comes to uh, to sex. Yeah. And then the scene after this, I think, plays into that even more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot that could be said about this sex scene. It is a very complex one. Um, yeah, I mean, what would you have to say about it? They go to Beth's apartment and Nick is very rough with her. Yeah. Rips open her shirt. Um, did, you, did some buttons go flying? They did. <laughs> um, rips open her shirt and she, she seems uncomfortable. Mm. And then he gets really rough and she says no. She, she does say no a few times. Um, he continues and then finishes very quickly. Yeah. It's very, very much about his needs, about what he wants. Um, and I, she's very uncomfortable. Yeah. And she doesn't make that apparent right away afterwards. No. But then afterwards she is, I didn't like that. That was all about you. That wasn't making love. Mm. And, and you know, she's a bit of a, a wet blanket through a lot of the film, but she tells him, you know, fuck off. Yeah. You know, get out. That's not right. Yeah, and as well, like, she thought that that scene was going to be a lot lighter before they started shooting it. Uh, so it's it's one of those things, again, where you just wonder, like, you know, what was she told versus what was Michael Douglas told? Like, it's there's a lot there's a lot there that's, like, unanswered, I think, about that scene. That's I think that's prob- that explains why the scene's so weird, then. Um, yeah. Because, you know, there's certain moments in that scene where it looks like this isn't anything new to them. It looks like this is their sex life. This is what they do. You know, mm. like, this is some sort of weird rough role playing um but now that you've mentioned that that makes absolute sense considering if she didn't know that's how it was going to go seemed it's a very sad part of cinematic history that this happens a lot where an actor is told to play a scene one way yeah particularly a sex scene and a um you know an intense sex scene, an actor's told to play it one way, where an actress is told to play it another way to get some form of surprise or shock out of the actress. Yeah. Um, most famously, Last Tango in Paris, um, where Marlon Brando was told to use the butter, where Maria Schneider wasn't told that butter would be used. Mm. Um, and it's a big part of cinematic history unfortunately because i mean directors don't trust the actress to give a performance like what she's paid for you know if you tell the actress play play it this way yeah discuss it with me and you know we'll figure it out i don't think it's that i think it's all a power play i think it's all a power play it's like they, they they want they're trying to let them know who's in charge. And I think that, especially like back then, it's like, you know, your career could could be over after this, so you do as I say. And it's, I, I think they play on play on that fear a lot and everything of like not, not being able to work again and whatnot. I think it's all a power play. I think so. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah. 
Yeah, it's true. Because, you know, you wouldn't do that to Michael Douglas. Mm. Nick and uh, Nick follows Catherine and a uh, ridiculous and over-the-top chase ensues uh, until he follows her back to a house where she meets with someone. He waits until she leaves and follows her again before she speeds off and he loses her. I love these little, like, Paul Verhoeven things where he just includes these really ridiculous over-the-top things in the middle of his films. Like, this chase is it's just so... It's unnecessary, but I'm glad it's there. <laughs> yeah. Nice. yeah. I think it is necessary, though, because Nick is chasing Catherine. Yeah, but he's just following her, and then it turns into this big chase. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. I think it's indicative of the film, though. Yeah. Because it starts at him following her, because he's a detective, mm-hmm. and then he chases her. Yeah. Uh, Gus discovers that... And we get to see him naked in the, the video, uh, in the window as well. Yeah, well, yeah. of course. <laughs> um, Gus discovers that Catherine's college counsellor, Professor Goldstein, was also murdered by someone with an ice pick. Uh, he then discovers that she has a history of befriending murderers, including Hazel Dobkins, uh, who killed her husband and children for no apparent reason. That was always something I wish that they'd have gone into a little bit more. Like, I was always so intrigued by the Hazel Dobkins story. Like, what's going on there? Like, give us, give us something with that. I was always really surprised that we never got into that. Yeah, I'd have loved to have seen a Hazel Dobkins spin-off, to be honest, especially with uh, the amazing casting for Hazel. Oh, Dorothy Malone, absolute legend, Oscar winner for Written in the Wind, one of my favourite films. Um, I wish she was in it a bit more, but she, she, she was serving a look. Every she time was. she was serving a look, you're like, oh, apparently killing all your family does you good because you look great. Did <laughs> she even have any lines? Yeah, later on. She has some iconic lines later on. Um, she just calls him Shooter. Yeah. She, <laughs> really. she doesn't have an interesting lines. No. She's just a couple. She just calls him I Shooter. I don't recall her saying anything. <laughs> Um, Nick discovers that Catherine is basing the protagonist of her latest book after finding more new on him after uh, finding more newspaper clippings at her house, which she says she's using for inspiration for the book. I mean, the fact he didn't click onto this immediately really says a lot about him. Um, Catherine asks how Nick asks Nick how it feels to kill someone and reveals that she knew he was on cocaine when he shot those two people. Uh, and this is when we get Roxy making an appearance and revealing herself to be Catherine's girlfriend. And the two start kissing as Nick leaves. Yeah. Um, Catherine, serving in a pantsuit. Of course. So that's what I got from that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing pantsuit. She's absolutely serving. Um, yeah. So this is the, the, sort of the bisexual element yeah. brought into into the film. Um. She's done. She's done her research. Yeah, you know, Nick was on coke. Doesn't she insinuate that Nick's wife killed herself? She does. Yes. Yeah. So she's she definitely. You know, she's playing mind games. Yeah. Definitely playing mind games, and and well too. Yeah. And Nick suspects that Catherine has bribed Nelson for information from Nick's psychiatric file, and that Beth has provided him uh, with the information after he threatened to recommend Nick's termination. Nick uh, assaults Nelson in his office and is sent home. Beth comes to see him and drop off the keys to his place with a Bart Simpson key ring. Come on, 90s. Uh, and they uh, have a bit of a scrap, don't they? Yeah. Um. At one point during this, Nick says, she knows where I live and breathe. She's coming after me, Gus. 
but within respect to the film, she hasn't come after him no, physically not at, at all. all. No. He's followed her. Yeah. He watched her through the window. She mm. hasn't come after him. Yeah. You know, he's just a detective that's investigating the death of her lover. Yeah. You know, not even boyfriend. You know, he's physically coming after her, but mm-hmm. he's saying to Gers, she's coming after him. Yeah. Which that's she, is. she is, though, because it's like, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's like she set this whole thing up. So it's like she knows what her ultimate end game is. And he's just he's just the person that's playing the game and doesn't even realise it. Like, I remember the, the tagline for the poster was like, I think it was something like, um, so like a brutal, a brutal murder, a brilliant killer and a cop who can't resist the danger. And I think it's that line, the cop who can't resist the danger. Like he know he knows, I think Nick knows what she's doing yeah. and he just can't resist it. And that's why he keeps going into it. Like, and that line just proves it to me. Like she knows everything about me and I, I basically know nothing about her. And I and I can't resist it because some something about her is just pulling me towards her. And I think he thinks he can play the game as well. Yeah. Mm. I think he he thinks, oh well, you know, if she wants a game, a cat and mouse game, mm-hmm. then I'll play along, not knowing that that's playing into her hands as well. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think from an outsider perspective, like Gus is probably sat there like, um, get a grip. You know, like, yeah. you know, she didn't know who you were mm-hmm. until two days ago. Yeah. Not knowing that, obviously, she did know. Yeah. Nick falls asleep in front of the TV whilst watching previous horror culture of a private podcast film, Hellraiser, uh, when he <laughs> receives a call to notify him that Nielsen has been killed. Uh, he was shot in the head whilst driving, and now Nick is a prime suspect, which makes for a very, very uh, interesting parallel when he's interrogated where uh, Beth arrives to defend him, and he lights up a cigarette in the same way as Catherine did before repeating some of her dialogue too. Yes. And then he's put on leave. We all have our own models. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think he wants to be Catherine at this point. (laughs) Who doesn't? It was interesting how when Nick was talking to Beth, I'm just going back slightly, he said, we went to bed 10, maybe 15 times. Um... Then why does she have a key to your apartment? Yeah. Like, why would you give a key if you're thinking we weren't even that close? Mm. All we did was shag 10 to 15 times. Because that's how he perceives relationships yeah. is, you know, have I shagged you? Do I want to shag you? You know, how many times have I shagged you? Um, why would he give Beth a key to his apartment? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. I, I don't think Beth is. I think she's be, definitely being played oh, definitely. as well yeah. by Nick. Uh, I think that's indicative of that. Yeah. And then, you know, he, she comes to defend him again. Yeah. You know, when he's, you know, in the same seat as Catherine was in. Catherine defended herself. Mm-hmm. Nick needs Beth because yes. he's flustered. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, you know, he's not crying. He's not breaking down. But you can see, and you know, Michael Douglas is a good actor. We're yeah. not, you know, he may have had a facelift, so he's really having to put the effort in. But you can see it that yeah. he's struggling, and Beth does have to come to his aid. Uh huh. Nick goes to see Catherine, and she continues to taunt him about the shooting, as well as telling him about one of her books where a character killed his parents. Ooh, that sounds similar to her parents. It does. 
Uh, Nick and Catherine begin a torrid affair uh, with the air of a cat and mouse game. Uh, Nick arrives at a club with people dancing like they're auditioning for Showgirls, whilst Rave the Rhythm by Channel X plays, uh, and witnesses Catherine doing cocaine with Roxy and another man in the bathroom. Um, this club scene is amazing. It continues to look like Showgirls uh, after this as well, when Nick and Catherine start dancing and making out. Um, yeah, it's just it's very 90s and very Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. Roxy's aggressive club dancing yeah. <laughs> walked, so Nomi Malone's aggressive club <laughs> dancing could run. Um, she's she's not scared of showing her anger, no. but she does. She still needs to dance. She's still got that rhythm, <laughs> that that iconic uh, Paul Verhoeven choreography in a very 1992 neon church decor. Uh, yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting how Nick went into the bathroom and Catherine closed the door on him. Yeah. So she's given him a drink. Yeah. She's given him a cigarette. Yeah. She hasn't quite given him the sex yet. No. But she's also refusing to give him the cocaine. Mm-hmm. She shuts the door on that. So she's using that to manipulate yeah. him. Yeah, I mean, after this, they are uh, later observed by Roxy whilst they're having violent sex in Catherine's bed. Uh, Catherine ties Nick to the headboard with a white silk scarf, just as Boz was tied to by the mystery blonde, um, but she doesn't kill him, which then leads to him telling Roxy that he thinks Catherine is the fuck of the century. This is a very interesting sex scene, because it's almost like they're fighting to be on top. Yeah. Uh, physically and, of course, you know... Um, mentally as well should mm-hmm. be speaking being on top of their cat and mouse game yeah um catherine eventually succeeds yeah and she is on top uh scratches his back real deep scratches on his mm-hmm. back as well um yeah i thought it was a very interesting sex scene you don't yeah. say that much in these kind of thrillers um but i think it did fit a purpose yeah. you know this yeah game between them who's going to come out on top yeah definitely and then the fake out at the end where um, <laughs> it's a little awkward when she sort of like slams into his face. <laughs> um, Nick tells Gus that he fucked Catherine and Gus goes on to tell him how dumb he is before ranting about Taurus for a bit. Um, is this the part, excuse me, uh, was the part when Nick says, let me ask you something, Rocky, man to man. Yeah, that was I think that. she's the fuck yeah. of the century, don't you? Yeah. And Nick's nude in this scene. Yeah. Very proudly nude as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't see it. Um, so I think it's very interesting in terms of Nick's character mm-hmm. that, you know, he, toxic masculinity. Yeah. You know, he's going to come out on top between him and Roxy. Yeah. Because, you know, he's the man. Yeah. And Roxy isn't. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, Nick, yeah, he tells Gus about it. Gus drives home drunk. I was convinced this was going to, when I first watched it, I thought this was going to lead to his death. I thought Conveniently. that. Yeah. Um, but instead of that, Roxy attempts to run Nick over with uh, Catherine's car, but dies when the car crashes after a chase. Yeah, Gus says to Nick uh, that he thinks it's Catherine's pussy talking and yeah. not Nick's brain. Um, Gus says, and Gus isn't, you know, um, 
he's no like Rock Hudson, is he? Oh, bless him, Gus. <laughs> but he does say he could shag any blue-haired woman he wanted to, but he doesn't. Um, so it, it's very, I think it's very much a um, play on, again, I keep saying it, but toxic masculinity, but yeah. also in the police force as well. Oh, yeah. You know, um, Paul Verhoeven always has something to say about American society. Yeah. And uh, I think in this case, it's, you know, the police mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah. Roxy, she dies. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. We barely knew thee. R.I.P. Roxy. <laughs> uh, Catherine grieves over Roxy's death, blaming herself because she let Roxy uh, watch her and Nick have sex, uh, but then asks Nick to make love to her and uh, goes on to tell him about a previous homosexual encounter at college with a girl named Lisa Oberman that went awry. Uh, she claims that the girl became obsessed with her in a very similar way to the plot of Single White Female, causing Nick to believe that Catherine may not have killed Boz. Now, yeah, I think it's very interesting how she actually seems to give a shit that Roxy died. Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, I, I think genuinely, like you said earlier, that was the most meaningful relationship she's had in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Because she doesn't kill Dorothy Malone either. No. Like, D- um, Dorothy Malone? D- who plays? I can't oh. remember the character. Dobkins. <laughs> <laughs> the older lady. Um, she keeps her around yeah. as well. And I think, I don't think she ever intended for Roxy to die. No. I think she intended for Roxy to help, mm. uh, subconsciously, for her to get at Nick. But I don't think she intended her to die in, in that way. No. Um, so I think she had a, probably, probably a closer connection to the female characters than she ever did the male yeah, characters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Except Beth. Yes. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, she couldn't give shit about Beth. Oh, yeah. She, yeah, she, she probably was. Yeah. <laughs> um, next... Do you think Beth killed her husband? Maybe. I feel like Beth. Beth's one of those characters that I I kept like I said earlier. Like I wanted something more from her, and I feel like they yeah. they hinted at it, but they never really went into it. And I think if they would have done it, she would have been a more well-rounded character. I think so. Yeah. I think I think the intention is that that's what happened. Hmm. Um, but they they just don't really give us anything to to go. You know, they don't give us anywhere to go with it. No. No, and yeah, I, I I would have liked to have seen her character fleshed out more because I think she is a really interesting character, um, and I think it's a great performance as well. But in for that character also. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next day at the station, Gus and Nick discover that Roxy impulsively killed her two younger brothers when she was sixteen years of age. Uh, Nick goes to see Catherine and is introduced to Hazel Dobkins. So this is where we get some dialogue from Hazel. Where she's like, you're the shooter, aren't you? How are you? And it's like, that's your first time meeting him and that's what you've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's a waste of Dorothy Malone's talent. I hate to go on about it, but it's a waste. I mean, what's an Oscar winner right there? One of, the, one of my favourite performances in Written on the Wind and she gets two lines, but she, she's given me Carol Channing realness. She looks great. She has to get home by six because she loves America's Most Wanted. She does, she does. (laughs) (laughs) 
and Catherine's making these jokes now, you know, she's she's playing Nick so well that she can make yeah. she's cracking these jokes. Yeah, Nick identifies Lisa Oberman as Beth, who acknowledges the encounter, but she claims it was Catherine who became obsessed. Uh she you know, she claims she was the one who was copying her hairstyle and her fashion and everything. Uh, which causes Nick to confront Catherine about it. Uh, and she's like, oh, seriously, who do you believe out of us two? Yeah. Do you, who do you believe? Do you, cause it's never really made clear. Exactly. And this is the problem who with the lack of, who? yeah. I mean, I'd be inclined to think because of the ending, I'd be inclined to think that it was, uh, Catherine doing the copying. Yeah. And setting, you know, everything up. But, but I don't know. But I think Beth was absolutely obsessed with her. He could, yeah. I mean, Beth is like, very attached to people as a character, do you know what I mean? It's like we've gone and said about how Nick's basically gone and said that all all that she really... Like, at the beginning of the film, he's like, oh, you know, my sex life's been really shitty since I stopped seeing you. And she has a key to his apartment and everything, but he's just been doing that to get off the hook with the internal affairs. So I think she gets quite attached to people quite quickly. And... The whole, like, I mean, that wig in that photograph that they go and do, like, when it's, like, it shows her normally and then it goes and does the split screen of her looking the exact same age with this massive, like, blonde mullet on her head. And it's you're just kind of looking at it thinking, eh And then it gets forward to the end and she's got, like, the... um When she's looking at her in the yearbook graduation photo um and she's, like, full-on, like, like, looking her up and down, do you know what I mean, in this picture? And it's, like, yeah. Beth was obsessed. It's like they probably slept together one time, yeah. once or twice, yeah. and then Beth's like thinking that they're going to be together forever. And it's like that—that's the way I interpreted it. Yeah, that, that's true. That's a very good comparison to how she's with Nick as well. Yeah, I didn't think of it like that, but that's, that's yeah. Absolutely and right. it's in keeping with Catherine's. I mean, she was probably know, a yeah. guinea pig. For yeah, Catherine. Yeah. Um. Really. Yeah, that that wig. My God, <laughs> that wig. Just give me Laura Palmer from Twin Peaks. Um, with that Laura Palmer, like the dollar store. Oh yeah. my God! <laughs> it was giving me Dolly Parton impersonator. No, not not Fire Walk with me, Laura Palmer. Oh my Lord, that's <laughs> rude! Wow. Um, Nick goes to a hospital where Beth used to work and asks if her husband works there, to which he's openly told that he was shot and killed five or six years ago. I love how he's not like, oh, I'm a detective. He just walks in like, oh, yeah, yeah. what happened? They're like, yeah, he died. He's like, what's the tea? <laughs> <laughs> um, he then goes to speak to a police officer who also openly tells him that her husband was killed with the same gun that Nelson was killed with uh, and that uh, Nelson was there previously asking some questions. Yes. So the plot thickens. Yes. I, lo- I love the, you know, large amount of twists and turns in this film. It's great. So many of them. Yeah, I agree. I think that the way that they they really do set it up to make you think that Beth has more to do with it, probably than what she actually does. But if there was ever one death in the film that I was a little bit apprehensive about, it was always Nilsson's because I was kind of thinking to myself, it's completely different to how Catherine would have done it. Yeah, yeah. But then it also works in the way of it, it, you know, to get at Nick and to, you know, to crack down his psyche a little bit. And then obviously, like, they had a fight beforehand and whatnot. But then I also look at it from Beth's point of view and I'm thinking, well, you know, she had to come in and defend Nick. Do you know what I mean? To the police afterwards, she comes to his rescue again and then they have that nice-ish moment. And then after they have the moment, her face kind of, like, drops as she gets back into the car. It's like... 
Beth could have been trying to do her own little game as well. You never know. Oh, you never know. Funny. This film, every time you watch it, you discover a new twist. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nick comes across the final pages of Catherine's book in which the fictional detective finds his partner's body in an elevator. She then breaks off the affair, uh, causing Nick to become very upset and suspicious. Poor Nick. Poor Nick. Womp womp. <laughs> um, she says, the game is over. You were right. It was the fuck of the century shooter. And at that point, it's just like, yes. Yes, queen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hazel comes down the stairs and asks for Catherine. They both go upstairs together. So is she getting it on with Hazel? Absolutely. Yeah. Love it. Love it. We needed definitely more of that. Catherine's doing everything. She's doing the most. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nick... I mean, it's on point with her character. Oh, well, definitely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Definitely. Nick later meets Gus, who has arranged to meet with Catherine's college roommate at an office building, hoping to reveal what really went on between Catherine and Beth. Uh, as Nick waits in the car, Gus is stabbed to death with an ice pick by a hooded figure in the elevator. Uh, recalling the last pages of Catherine's book, Nick runs into the building, only to find Gus's body in a manner similar to the scene described. Did we think this was a nod to Dress to Kill? Yes. Yes. That's all I could think of when yes, watching it. Yes, I think so. I, I mean, a lot of this film is a nod to Hitchcock. Yeah. And Dress to Kill is Hitchcock for the 80s. It is. Yeah. And this is Hitchcock for the 90s. Yeah. So, yeah, I absolutely think that is a nod to Dress to Kill. Um, yeah, Gus can't say sad that that character's gone, but he's dead. Um <laughs> And you you upset that Gus is not gone? really no. not really I, d- I don't really feel sorry for drink drivers. So. <laughs> um, Beth unexpectedly arrives and explains that she received a message on her answering machine to meet Gus. Nick suspects Beth has murdered Gus and believing that she is reaching for a gun, he shoots her, but only to discover she was fiddling with her Bart Simpson keyring on her keychain. The stupidest decision that that character makes in the film. <laughs> Someone is holding a gun to you. Don't walk towards them and put your hand in your pocket. Like, stay stay away or run, do you know what I mean? Like, if you got a gun up at me, I'm like, oh, I'm out, do you know what I mean? She's like, that's, that's walking towards him. Yeah, and he's, cool. like, doing this, like, coy smile as she slips her hand in her pocket. It's like, what game are you playing, Beth? Because it's not going to end the way you want it to. Bam. I was like, what's going on here? Poor Beth. I mean, yeah, she wasn't the brightest, but she tried, but she wasn't, she wasn't the brightest. Do so. you think she made... The ultimate sacrifice. No. For. (laughs) (laughs) I always rag on this character a little bit because I just always wanted, you know, more from her. But I just ultimately, I just, I felt like I I couldn't. There there was only really two times that I could sympathise with her in the entire film, and I was just thinking like she's, she's, she's everything that. She represents something that a lot of people do. And when you're in that place a lot and then you kind of get out of it, you look at people like that and you just want to shake them because you just want to go, come on, stop. Do you know what I mean? Don't fall down this path with this person that's not good for you. And you just, she just never she never gets it. And you just kind of by the end, you're just thinking, what were you hoping to achieve with the key ring? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's all I could think about. It was like, was did he give you the key ring? Were you trying to pull the key ring out to go? Do you remember when you gave me this Bart Simpson keyring? Please don't shoot me in the chest. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's not gonna, it ain't gonna stop. He's fucking nuts. I just, that that scene just it, for that. And then her last words are, 
I loved you. It's like, so you were a simp in life and a simp in death. So let plants, Beth, done, check, off the bucket list. So do you think, uh, uh, yeah, this might get a little complicated, but do you not think she deliberately did that for Nick or Catherine? It depends who she was ultimately obsessed with. Yeah. Because it's indicated that she was obsessed with Catherine in college, but also potentially Nick Mm -hmm. afterwards. Um, I think that she killed her husband and somebody knew about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nick's final words to her was still like girls, Beth. (laughs) Do you remember that? What are you? She found out that she had a girlfriend Mm. when her husband was killed. Yes. So was she? Is she making a sacrifice to save Catherine because she was obsessed with Catherine? I mean, Roxy did it. Maybe. I just don't think Beth's got the layers. Do you know what I mean? I just I I feel like I feel like Roxy barely had any dialogue, and she was on screen for such a short amount of time. Yeah. But she still had a lot of layers as a character, do you know what I mean? Like, she was quite relatable in a few scenes. Do you know what I mean? Like, the whole aspect of it's not like seeing Catherine go off with a guy. Do you know what I mean? And stuff like that. Like, it really upset her because she was kind of seeing in that moment that, you know, she isn't Catherine's number one priority and Catherine doesn't only like girls kind of thing. So she's kind of got that relatability to her in a sense. Um Whereas Beth, I just, I, I can't, I can't look at her and think anything other than you're a simp. <laughs> That's it. And I just, it, it's an interesting angle to think that she could have potentially like been, um, you know, work, you know, working with Catherine kind of thing like that. But I don't know. I just, I, her character in the film does too much to try and help Nick. Yeah. That makes me think that she couldn't have been working with Catherine. Yeah. She just wanted, she, she was obsessed with her and Catherine loved her. Um, yeah. Evidence, including, uh, including that blonde wig and an ice pick, uh, were collected at the scene. She kept that blonde wig for a long time. <laughs> something so ugly. Good condition. <laughs> yeah, very good condition. Um, it's collected at Super the scene bullshit. and is in Beth's apartment, uh, implicating her as the killer of Boz, Nelson, Moran and her own husband. Uh, along with collections of photos and newspaper clippings of Catherine that imply an obsession with her. Um, this leaves Nick... <laughs> this leaves Nick confused and dejected. Uh, he returns to his apartment. Nick's sad again. What a shame. Uh, he returns to his apartment where Catherine meets him. She explains her reluctance to commit to him as people she cares about keep dying. Uh, but then they have sex and... After that, they discuss their future. Catherine appears to be reaching for something under the bed. They start having sex again, and an ice pick is revealed to be under the bed, and that's basic instinct. I love how they do that end, where it goes to black, and you think the credits are going to start, and then it's just very brief, Yeah, but you think the credits are going to start, and you're like, oh, fucking hell, you know? And then it starts again, and then it goes down to under the bed with the ice and pick. And the way the score intensifies as well as soon as you see the ice pick, it's, yeah. it's amazing. It's really great. Yeah, really great. A chef's kiss ending, if you ask me. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. So Always leave them more. <laughs> Until 
basic instinct. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in which case, just don't put yourself through it. Don't wish good. Uh, so what are our closing thoughts on basic instinct? Legendary, iconic, defined a genre, started careers. Um, I, I, do you know what? I I will always love this film, I think, just because it it is such a wild ride. And I'm never bored of it. Every single time I watch it, it's it's like watching it for the first time. And, and even though I know what's going to happen next, I'm still excited about it. And there's only a few other films that have that effect on me. And it, it, I just seem to enjoy it more and more each time I watch it because it's like trying to just get further into the psyche of like Catherine and like just the way that the way that that character works. Like there's just there's a lot of story in, in that one person and it always leaves you wanting more. Like at that ending scene, it always leaves you wanting more. But whatever plot you could come up with on your own is probably better than the one that you're going to see in Basic Instinct 2. Because it just it just didn't it 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 had all the tools for it, but it just it didn't execute it well at all. What's your thoughts, Chris? I think I, I completely agree. Um, I think it's the sort of ultimate Paul Verhoeven film, and I'm a yeah. huge Paul Verhoeven fan. Where you think it's one thing, but when you really digest it, yeah. and you really take notice, it's not only thoroughly entertaining, it's got layers yeah it's mm. fascinating it's well made the characters are well developed um and yeah i agree you know it started a really a whole genre it it brought what hitchcock was doing you know what brian de palma was doing and brought it into the 90s made it so stylish mm-hmm. um it pushed boundaries of sex on screen yeah you know in a mainstream film um and it brought sharon stone to our lives and you know thankful for that yeah absolutely. for that we will be forever grateful exactly it's paul verhoeven at his best it's sharon stone at her best what more could you want it's a camp old time and it's it doesn't think it needs to yeah. to a great level it's melodramatic yeah it's you know thrilling it's horror it's erotic thriller it's yes everything comes um, across the board yeah (laughs) so if you are a fan of basic instinct let us know on social media we're horror court trash over on facebook and instagram horror court trash on twitter i'm dead at gaz92 on letterboxd gazmo205 on instagram and gazcruz92 on twitter I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. And, you know, it's Pride Month. If you're feeling generous, give your favourite gays uh, five stars on iTunes. Rate, review and subscribe. Like and follow and everything else. Give us a rating on Spotify. Curtis, where can we find you? Oh, you never can. I'm always looking. So, no, I'm <laughs> um, I am on Instagram at Curtis.S underscore corner 2.0. So, yeah, if you like films and you want to see lots of pictures of Blu-rays, then give me a follow. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, if you don't, fuck off, because I don't care. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, by the way. Well, fun. I had a great time. Yes, this, this has been a lot of fun to record and a lot to say about this uh, great choice of a film as well. I know, it's nearly gone on for the same length of time as the film as I well. Know, like, yeah. <laughs> but you could sync it up. Um, so next week we'll be back on Tuesday discussing Freaky with their queer podcast. Woo. 
And on Friday, it's double episode week. On Friday, we'll be back and we'll be discussing Hairspray for our original versus remake episode. I mean, what else are we going to discuss for original versus remake for Pride Month? Remake. Remake. Uh, You know, we already did Suspiria last year, so. Yes. No idea what we're going to do next year. Um, But yes, thanks again, Curtis. Thank you so much. And (laughs) we will be back next week. Same time, same place. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Oh, 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 oh,